The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by writer and director James Gray. Gray began his career in 1992 with the film Little Odessa. He was only 23 back then, and part of a wave of young, bold American directors like Steven Soderbergh, Quentin Tarantino, and Paul Thomas Anderson. In the 20 years since his debut, he's directed movies like We Own the Night, Two Lovers, The Immigrant, and Ad Astra from 2019. His films are often set in the outer boroughs of New York City, where he came of age in the 70s and 80s. In his latest picture, Armageddon Time, Gray returns to what he calls the Archie Bunker part of Queens. To set the stage, the film opens in 1980 at Public School 173, where we find Paul Graff, a red-headed 12-year-old who dreams of one day becoming an artist. But as Paul continues to flail in class alongside his best friend, Johnny, his parents, played by Anne Hathaway and Jeremy Strong, decide to transfer him to a prestigious prep school. Here's a clip from the trailer. In this institution, you can be anything you want to be. It won't be because of a handout. It'll be because you earned your way there. Something's bugging you. What is it? Sometimes kids say bad words about the black kids. Who's that? Somebody from my old school. Did they ever come to your house? What do you do when that happens? 
Obviously nothing, of course. You think that's smart? My mother, you know, when we came over here, we didn't have much. Why'd she come here? Because they wanted to kill her, that's why. They were soldiers, and sometimes they'd go out looking for Jews. They hated us then, and they still hate us. So I got on the boat and we came over here to America, the land of dreams. You just want to be like you. I want you to be a whole lot better than me. Life is unfair. Be thankful when you get a leg up. You make the most of your break and do not look back. All my hopes are with you and your brother for my whole life. Next time those schmucks say anything bad about those kids, you're gonna say something. You're gonna be a match, okay? Firm handshake. Okay, give me a hug. That was from the film Armageddon Time, which is now in limited release across the country. It will expand in theaters nationwide starting November 4th. Now, Gray, like Paul in the film, grew up in a Russian Jewish household to a family of Holocaust survivors. And while the picture is not entirely autobiographical, the heart of the movie, which is this relationship between Paul and Johnny, a black kid who lives with his ill grandmother, is based on Gray's childhood. In turn, the film examines ideas around class and race in the 1980s, how one can be both oppressed and the oppressor, especially as the American dream grows increasingly elusive. But beyond the film's timely social and political commentary, Armageddon Time is a meditation on memory, both the moments we retain and the ones we wish we could forget. In the book On Photography, Susan Sontag wrote, To take a photograph is to participate in another person's mortality, vulnerability, and mutability. Precisely by slicing out this moment and freezing it, all photographs testify to time's relentless melt. And the same, I think, is true of making a film like Armageddon Time, which results in a kind of cinematic Polaroid of Gray's tumultuous childhood. And so, all of this, as you're about to hear, is the subject of today's conversation, which is part James Gray biography, part deep dive into Armageddon time, a State of the Union on movie making in 2022, and of course, the painful timeliness of this new project as anti-Semitic rhetoric continues to surge. So, without further ado, this is James Gray. James Gray. Hello. How you feeling? I'm fine, I think. I don't know. You'll tell me. After we're done, maybe you'll be like, oh my God, he was really off. <laughs> you don't seem off. I think I now am in a permanent state of feeling and looking off. I stopped feeling on maybe about eight or nine years ago. What does that mean exactly? Uh, it means uh, getting older, I mm -hmm. think. Like the minute you can no longer read a menu at a restaurant. Right. That's sort of a demarcation line. Also, lower back pain. When that starts to become a thing, then I think the inevitable rotting process begins. 
Is that what you're calling your life? I think I call that life, not my <laughs> life. I mean, that's everybody. I'm, you know, it's like you, you see some hobbled, very old person crossing the street, and there's always a measure of heartbreak, and then you think, well, that's what I have to look forward to if I'm lucky. You ever see Lucchino Visconti's The Leopard? It's on a list. Oh, you got to see that. It's really great. And the whole movie's about the sort of inevitable rotting of our species. You know, it's been five years since you and I sat down on this show. And a lot's happened in those five years. A lot of catastrophe, yeah. A lot of catastrophe. But I want to specifically set the stage for how this new movie came to be, as I understand it. In 2019, you release Ad Astra after years of working on this ambitious space opera about loneliness, fathers and sons, led by Brad Pitt. But once the film is released in the fall of 2019, you said it was a very painful thing to have people tell me things that they hated about the movie that I had nothing to do with. I was so deeply upset, I had lost all my enthusiasm for making films. So in the fall of 2019, on the heels of that experience, I have two questions. Where were you at emotionally after Ad Astra? And then how did you go about regaining that enthusiasm for making movies? I had the great good fortune of, in the opera world, you make arrangements for things that you want to do like five years in advance. They have a very long lead time. And I had pledged to direct Marriage of Figaro in Paris five years before that. It was one of those things where I thought, oh, five years from now, fine, I'll do it. And then when September of 2019 came around and Ad Astra came out and I was forced really only a matter of two weeks later to go to Paris, I was by myself. My wife and children hadn't joined me yet and I was kind of in a state, you know, like Steve McQueen and Papillon or something like in the cell. Anyway, the point is, is that I was very down. I didn't know what I was doing with the opera. I'd never directed an opera before. I was reading all the stuff I could get my hands on about Mozart, but even that was kind of not helpful to divert my attention. I just started to think of uh, childhood stories. I started to think of the stories I told my children, but I was in a terrible state. And how did I rediscover the love of cinema? Well, it's very simple. You know, I watch movies that I love, and then all of a sudden something happens inside of you where it's almost like... You know when you get a tooth pulled or something, and you remember the tooth pull, you say, yeah, that was awful. But for some reason, we remember our pain less well than we do our pleasures. And so that started to go away, and then all of a sudden the creative juices flow again, and really it comes from watching other beautiful works. Did some part of that sadness that you felt feel insurmountable? Or was it something you had felt before? Well, it depends. I'm spo I'm on this show. Should I tell you the truth or not? I mean, the truth is, of course, it felt insurmountable. I've gone through periods where it's been very difficult emotionally because you try to put yourself into the work. You try to give of yourself in some good and not so good ways. You try to reveal everything. It's hard to recharge the batteries. And really, it's one long fight to be a movie director. 80% of one's day, even when one has as much control as is possible, you're still fighting, whether you're fighting the sun, you're fighting the cinematographer, in my case, almost never, but you're always fighting the trucks. Why are the trucks here? You're fighting the actor who wants to go in the corner and move away from the light that you've set up. <laughs> I mean, everything is a fight. That's under the best case scenario. And it takes energy and time and a huge amount of stick to to not give up. And if you look at it, there are many directors, they have a 
period where they do some excellent work and then all of a sudden it sort of falls off or they stop working, it's because it takes all that energy to fight. And sometimes you lose that energy. I've not lost that. As we set this movie up, do you think you have more fight now than you did as a young director? I think I do because I know the battlefield a little bit better. Look, one of the irritating things about movies is that no amount of expertise that you've gained on movie A will help you on movie B. Every movie presents you with totally different challenges. Now, that doesn't mean that first-time directors know as much as people who have made 10 movies, but growth is not certain. Growth is uneven. It's why sometimes you'll see a movie that is made in a director's career early on is better than one that's later on. What is for certain is that you start to understand the rules of engagement, what battles you might have. Now, that doesn't mean I feel I can make a great movie every time. That's not what I mean. Who was that? Just a random Shlemiel, I guess. Okay. M basically me as a Shlemiel. Okay. It was almost Brando-like. It was? Well, that's uh, Brando. Brando's up here. That's Brando. But, uh, Quite good. Oh, is it good? Good. Yeah. Well, it depends. Are you doing young Brando? No, no, I'm doing no Brando. Young Brando is different from old Brando. You know, John Belushi had a great skit, dueling Brandos, used to call it. So, that, you know, that was the younger one. That was the younger one. That was the, that was the Godfather. So it's two different Brandos, you say. Look, look at your range here. Yeah, I can do both, I think. I hope. <laughs> anyway, what the hell am I saying? You see, you got me distracted with Brando impressions. I don't even remember what I was saying. <laughs> As you're in Paris, alone, waiting for your family to arrive. You were starting to think about the bedtime stories that you would tell your kids and how you may go about making one of those in film. Except, as I understand it, you've called Armageddon Time not a bedtime story, but a ghost story. That's right. What does that mean? What's the difference to you? Because the best children's stories, for example, are always in some way have the uncanny summoned, don't they? Mm-hmm. I mean, in fact, part of the problem with a kind of packaged prefab idea of a fable is sometimes they try to eliminate the darkness. But darkness is a key ingredient because you have to remind children of some of the less pleasant or easy things in life. There was a way to which I could marry, you know, the idea of a ghost story, a fable, with something that's childlike but also altogether frightening in places and unpleasant in places. Does that start for you on that afternoon before production begins, when you're driving over the 59th Street Bridge with your wife and kids, and they ask you, can we make a pit stop? Yeah, I've talked about this. The, that, that is a true story. I took them back to the house. What a sadness that was for me. It, it's just such an impermanence. And I don't know what this is. Everything always seems so much smaller. I don't know if you've ever had the feeling where you go back to your high school gym and it's way smaller and the house I grew up in was tiny and the alleyway behind my house where we played stickball, it was impossibly narrow. I thought, how did we ever play a game here where we had bases and the whole thing? You know, I don't know what that is, but it's peculiar. I just was uh, really moved by the experience. One of the things that really moved me actually was in the house next door, I saw my neighbor looking at me. And I didn't have the guts to go talk to him. He was a lovely guy. He lived there for, I don't know, 40 years, maybe more. But I didn't want to talk to him because I knew that his wife had died not long before that. My father had told me. I don't know. I didn't want to confront him. But I could see how sad he looked and happy he looked to see me at the same time. 
that's where all of this started to kind of come together because uh, in some ways, a very selfish act, very egotistical act to try and summon your childhood, you know, and save it and bring it back to life in some way. And I'm bringing back all these people that have died. I'm bringing them back to life. What did your kids think of the house? I don't know what picture they had of the house. I don't know what they thought it would be. They've lived a very cloistered existence, but they were stunned by what they saw as a kind of small and, and rundown quality to it. Well, the rundown quality of that home is reflected in this new film of yours, which begins in 1980, but I think to give some context, comes on the heels of the Bronx burning, the blackout of 1977, the energy crisis of 1979, eventually landing on the fall of 80 as Reagan is trying to unseat President Jimmy Carter. When you're starting to build your childhood in this Russian Jewish family, going to school in Queens, how much is built from memory and how much is built from research? Research only takes you so far. Research is sort of the facts on the ground. And it's not enough to be factually correct or autobiographical. Personal and autobiographical have different demands on you. Something that is personal is expressing the most intimate side of you. Autobiographical is the facts of the case. This is the wallpaper I had, which my brother actually remembered. That's important. It sets a context for the world. And it does matter. And by the way, I think it separates good from bad, the level of detail. You're quite right to mention, by the way, Bronx is burning and energy crisis and uh, the blackouts, because it's not a movie, and people always say this, including, by the way, my production team says it's an 80s movie. It's not. I consider it a late 70s movie, almost like a hangover from the 60s, really, a way of trying to make real some of the interesting and important commitments that the late 60s had. But people tend to forget, because we romanticize the past, what a brutal and unforgiving moment 1980 actually was. It was a deeply unhappy country. And when you are between childhood and adulthood, you're trying to make sense of the world. And you're trying to see the differences in people, why they are, and understand the unfairness of the world, the brutality of the world, which has been often and hopefully shielded from you before then. That, I think, is really at the core of what it means to be that age. I can tell you that at that moment in my life, the cruelty of the world seemed to uh, become quite evident to me. How did that manifest? Well, mostly in the public school that I went to, there were 46 kids in the class, one teacher, huge budget cuts in the late 70s in New York, forced sometimes what they called cross grades, where they would combine grades and put 50 kids in the class. You used very old textbooks. The obvious signs of decay were all around you. And of course, the... Uh, obvious unfairness of treatment of different students by the teacher. But mostly I sensed less than divisions along the lines of race. I sensed more divisions along class lines. I remember some of the students who had religious instruction on Wednesday afternoons, and they would come looking all prim and proper because they would be going to parochial school. They were allowed to leave early. They seemed special to me. You know, and then there were other kids who had to travel 45 minutes or an hour by a school bus just to get to public school and didn't eat lunch with us because they ate the hot lunch as opposed to the lunches we got in a brown bag that our parents gave us. So you begin to see the fissures. This conversation around race and class, it seems to be at the heart of this movie, especially with 
the relationship between Paul and Johnny. Now, I understand Johnny is based on a friend you had growing up in Queens. In the movie, they kind of trauma bond over their teacher's disdain for them. And in the process of doing so, discover a mutual desire to be creative and free and maybe one day very far away from Queens. Why don't we take a look at a clip from the film in which we find Paul and Johnny inside the classroom. Class, exchange 110, 410, 1. And that is how you subtract large numbers, right? Subtraction. Yeah. Mr. Turkey Top, I don't Circle understand. Circle Top. I just explained it to you, Mr. Uh, Edgar Romanelli. Mr. Romanelli, were you not listening? All right, you guys repeat yourself. You'll learn it. <laughs> I have eyes in the back of my head, Mr. Davis. I didn't even do anything. I will not tolerate any nonsense. Cut it out or you will go to Principal Seabell's office. Now, you said once, you make the work in some ways as a kind of coping mechanism. And I'm curious, did telling this story, and by extension, part of Johnny's story, did it help you cope with that relationship? No, I, I, I wish it did. It would be very easy to say yes and how much better it made me feel about the world. But I have no closure. I have no feeling of catharsis. It feels only more fraught because you realize that you can never see the whole picture. And what is a personal history? What is history? It's like history is an unending series of layers that can never, ever be satisfactorily revealed to you. And so when I think back on uh, my relationship with him, I get no easy answer or solution. I have no relief. But I think that's the way it should be, by the way. Part of the challenge, actually, being a creative person is that you know that if you're 100% successful, it's going to take some time because that means something is unsettling in it. If everybody loves it when they first see the painting or read the book or watch the movie, there's something wrong because it means that it went down too easy. You need a level of provocation in order for the work to simmer in the collective unconscious for a long time. Having watched the film twice now, there is a discomfort one feels while watching it. Really? I'm, you're going to have to tell me this because I made it, so it's hard for me to know that answer. Well, I think what that is, is this larger point about someone being both the oppressed and an oppressor. Because it would be much better if you could target a villain. But life is notably absent most villainy. You know, Donald Trump, okay, he's like a perfect example. And it's like this guy who has orange hair and strange colored skin and seems very artificial. And he says terribly anti-Semitic and racist and sexist things and makes fun of handicapped people. This is a basic villain in like a comic book. But that's not most people. Most people actually have good intentions. And most people are kind of trying to survive in a very hostile world. And that's harder to unravel when things go wrong. It's harder to figure that out. We've created a structure for our world which actually favors not caring. But for the human race to thrive, how can you have a system which is based on not caring as much as the other person is the winner? That's only one sliver of what we face collectively. Life is hard. It seems like you didn't totally realize how hard life was 
until this formative age of 12, 13. I knew that I had to fight for what I wanted from a very young age. In fact, I can't remember even when it was that I became cognizant of that fact. And I seem to remember knowing that pretty early on, I'm talking like second or third grade. My father loved to tell a story where I simply refused to eat for four days in Europe until they found Heinz ketchup. Like there was something always a little bit wrong with me. Like I didn't give in. And he was just to say, he said, you know, you were so willful. What a willful little child you were. Sometimes you were fighting for Heinz ketchup. Yeah. Other times you were fighting, I imagine, to pursue art. Yeah, I mean, my parents, and I don't blame them for this at all, by the way. My parents, particularly in 1977, were really struggling financially. I think by 1980, they had sort of come out of it a little bit. But in 1977, they needed the uh, food stamp program for assistance. I remember my mother being quite humiliated by that at the supermarket. I remember going to a supermarket called Wallbaums with her, and she was paying with food stamps. And I said, what is that, mommy? And she said, stop it. Stop it. They'll make a point of it. Yeah. Stop it, she used to say. I remember that. And so they had survival issues. And, you know, to have a son say he wants to be a non, it wasn't specific, an artist, they may as well have said that, you know, they've heard that I was, you know, wanting to run away and become a drug addict or something. They didn't know what it was, didn't know what it meant. But I was really lucky. And I had one person who loved me. But I shouldn't say that. My parents really loved me. I know they did. But my grandfather was the one who let me know it. He was the one who took the time to say, you're wanted. And that is everything for a child. You only need one. I've heard you say this before, that part. I'm wondering, do you only need one or did you only have one? See, Sam, you're quite good at this because that's an excellent, excellent point because I only had one. Maybe that's the reason, you know, I need to be on the shrink's couch all the time. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, life is, uh, as we say, filled with these complexities. And I do have a very rich existence in many ways. I mean, I, I have my children, as I've expressed, that I love. And my wife's incredible. And I'm surrounded by lots of good books. And my friends are amazing. I've made a very nice life for myself. So I think probably one is enough because I didn't wind up in the street. So I would say one is what you need. You want more, but if you only got one, you're all right. We'll be right back with filmmaker James Gray. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer, so they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. 
it's been a huge success. The City of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the City of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Coming back, I know you started working on this film a few years ago, but it feels, unfortunately, very timely in this moment. I'm thinking specifically about the Russian Jewish family at the center of the film, which of course was modeled after your family in Queens, and all the conversations they have around the dinner table about racism and anti-Semitism in America. And so given the recent resurgence we've seen in anti-Semitic rhetoric, how are you thinking about all this as your movie Armageddon Time begins to open in all these different parts of the country. It's very sad to me because it feels like we keep replaying the same thing over and over and over again. When it comes to issues of uh, 
I don't understand the anti-Semitism thing from, I mean, from Trump, I don't have any expectations. So obviously he's just a, who he is. I don't understand the Kanye West stuff. I had tremendous admiration for him as a creative person. And um, it's just such a sadness to me. I have no other way to put it except a sadness. And as for issues of racism in the United States, it's true. I, I wrote the film before George Floyd you would love to say, oh, you, you know, we, we put X or Y behind us, but it doesn't seem like we're capable of doing that at all. I don't understand it. I really don't. I can't, like, I, it was funny because I remember when I, my kids watched the movie 42 about Jackie Robinson and they're big baseball fans. They literally did not understand the movie. And when I say they did not understand it, I mean, they're like, wait, why can't he play baseball? And then I'm sitting there trying to explain why... Jackie Robinson could not play in the major leagues. And I literally was like, I, I, I don't know how to do this. I don't have the tools for this. The, this. First of all, when you actually say it aloud, why he can't play in baseball, it's like the dumbest thing you ever heard in your life. And then you're having to explain something moronic to your children. And then they go, oh, I understand, I think. And then they see this. I mean, we had protests because we live right near the mayor. So the protests were literally across the street from us. And my kids went out and joined them. It was kind of an amazing experience, but I felt very sad because it feels like you keep playing the same song over and over and over again. It feels too big for me. It feels like you try to excavate a little bit, and the more you excavate, the bigger the hole seems. I just become withdrawn. I retreat into myself because I don't know how to face it in the world. I have this weird desire, penchant, whatever, to read World War II books. My wife says it's because I'm trying to understand, as Hannah Arendt called it, the banality of evil. This idea that a total inability and unwillingness to have any compassion, sympathy, empathy for anybody outside your immediate realm of understanding. And I, I can't, I don't get it. I don't get it. it, it does it make sense to you? I can't explain it. I mean, you're asking me the hardest question ever. It's like, why does the human race have this absolute need constantly to have like a pecking order. It's madness. And it's always existed. You know, you, you, you throw different groups to the wolves at different times and you just say, well, what, what is that in us that requires that? I don't have an answer. If you had a hard time explaining- I'm sorry that I botched no, no, no. your answer. I don't you have an answer. You didn't botch any answer. It's because it's, it, I've told this story to friends of mine in the past. It's like the perfect example of what it is I'm talking about. The total blindness to extend any humanity to anyone outside yourself or your immediate family. There was this story about Rudolf Haas, the head commandant at Auschwitz, a person who oversaw the deaths of about 1.3 million people. And not just Jews, by the way, but also a large portion of political prisoners, homosexuals, Roma, one of the worst human beings who's ever lived. When the British captured him and interrogated him after the war, they said, do you have any regrets? You're responsible for 1.3 million deaths. He said, Yes, I did not spend enough time with my family. And that answer, it's, it's, I, I, I don't understand it. Do you? No. I, 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 I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to see like what would cause somebody to think that way. I, I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer, but I bring this up because this movie of yours, which is about 1980, seems awfully a lot like it's about now. Yeah, of course. And is moreover, about to be in theaters across the country in places that are once again returning to a kind of anti-Semitism. And I cannot help but shake 
the moment in which this is being delivered? I don't know. Maybe it was always there. and Maybe it's better that it's out in the open as opposed to like pushed aside. But, but I mean, look at what the Supreme Court did to women. There's such a desire and a need for white Christian European descendant males to literally lord over and just crush. It's I, I And I don't want to reduce it to that even, because even there you start to see class separations and it becomes an unending search for this villain. And you'll never find it because it's systemic. Maybe it's because we need the other to explain what is wrong. You know, every society needs a kind of collective myth to survive. And ours is obviously Horatio Alger. You work hard, you do the right thing, you play by the rules, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And when the society begins to fail to deliver on the myth for at least some, there are cracks and then the dam begins to break. I think what you're seeing now with this kind of recrudescence of America first kind of 1939 Father Coughlin fascist thing is that capitalism has stopped delivering on rising wages, increasing middle class. And when that stopped, people kind of went, wait a minute. And some turned to the left and some turned, of course, to the right. But I think that's what you're seeing actually across the Western world. It's funny that you pinpoint capitalism because we've been unpacking the social climate in which this film is about to be dropped into. But you said recently that Hollywood has reduced its cultural significance in the name of capitalism. What does that mean exactly? If you prioritize only profit as opposed to excellence, immediate profit, you don't think long term and you don't believe in things like loss leaders and you don't believe in a broad-based cultural interest in what you have to offer. So what you're seeing with the studios is kind of a microcosm of American capitalism and that is that you make only one kind of movie because that's the only kind of movie that makes money because it's the only kind of movie you make. And so it's like this routine that keeps repeating itself. And in the end, it will destroy itself. Now, in some ways, this has been very good for the United States because what it's led to is a capacity for us to reinvent ourselves. If you and I were sitting here having this conversation somewhere around 1991, the end of George H.W. Bush, you would be quite distressed, the situation would appear dire, incomes are stagnant. Then the internet comes and there's another explosion of wealth. We generate something new. But in the movie business, all that means is it's not something that business thinks is uh, deserving of permanent place in our culture. And it might be dying. Might be. Might not be. I don't know the answer to that either. I mean, I I've seen there are many times where the death of movies has been predicted and it's been completely wrong. So I certainly hope that American pictures come back. You know, it was in the early 1990s when you started your career. I believe it's late 80s. You leave Utopia Parkway, head out to USC and start following that dream of wanting to make movies. And I wanted to go to that first film. It's called Little Odessa. When you look at that period of time, what do you see? I was clearly dealing with some kind of depression which I did put into that film, I was also unbelievably arrogant. I mean, I thought I was fantastic. In film school, I remember I said this, I thought I was the second greatest English language director in the world. Behind? Behind Stanley Kubrick. I thought I was number two. Close second. The truth is I actually was number two, but of a very different sort. 
when I finally finished shooting the film. Oh, that was a poop joke. Yeah, it was. I got it. I, I you know, I'm uh, some, jokes are, some jokes are just for me, Sam. I tried to figure it out. I'm just moving slow. When I finished the film and watched the whole thing, it was unbelievably bad. March 5th, 1994. That's right. That was the end of my confidence. And I remember it so clearly. It was like such a wake-up call about how hard it is to be a good craftsman. And you got to work at it, and it takes a long time, and you have to earn it. And um, in the world, it was a much more open place for cinema. At the time, I didn't appreciate it. How do you mean? Well, I was romanticizing the 1970s. I was romanticizing particularly places like United Artists, which existed. It, fe it felt like it existed to support the director. And the movie business did change after 1980 in a very obvious way. So I was lamenting that. But now I look back on it and it seems like, what a great gift, you know, this explosion of independent cinema and the home video market had all this money pouring into smaller pictures. It's how Quentin Tarantino made Reservoir Dogs. It's how I got my film made because of Tarantino's working with Tim Roth. And uh, Tim committed to my film after that. So I think of it now as a very fertile moment for a lot of young directors, some of whom went on to spectacular careers. Others made works of beauty that, that last, but only made one or two. So I look at it with some tremendous uh, affection. Well, my last question for you. You mentioned your kids. I was thinking about um, that car ride you took with them back home to Queens. I just want to revisit that afternoon for a second. When you pull up to that two-story brick house on 175th Street, the home you came of age in, the home you left behind to go to California, the home that's at the center of this new movie. And I wondered, as you approached that space with your kids next to you, how much of this passage from Proust was on your mind? If you'd like to read it. Poets make out that we recapture for a moment the self that we were long ago when we enter some house or garden in which we used to live in our youth. But these are most hazardous pilgrimages, which end as often in disappointment as in success. The fixed places contemporary with different years, it is in ourselves that we should rather seek to find them. Oh my God, the guy was a... The guy was so brilliant. It all comes down to the same idea, right? Very simply this, that our lives are brief, our stay is ephemeral, it is beautiful because of that, and it is that impermanence with which we struggle, but also it's that impermanence that allows us to embrace a very good, you know, roast pork fried rice when we have it. We try to concretize our experience. Sometimes we do that by citing places, but it's all in some ways an act of folly, and we always fall prey to uh, time's relentless melt. Well, that's Susan Sontag. Yes, it is. You're good. How'd you know that? That's good. That's one of the most beautiful things I've ever read any human being write. That's from On Photography, I think. I remember reading it and just being so devastated by uh, that sense of um, what it means to be a human being where unlike you know, my dog, I love my dog, but my dog is it's not aware of its mortality. It, only instinctually it avoids pain. But that struggle that we have on a daily basis because it's in the back of our minds, it's always there. And we do an excellent job of pushing it to the back of our minds. 
And as we get older, it starts to creep forward. How you contend with that is the story of how well you manage in the world. This conversation started with you saying, that afternoon, when your kids asked to make a pit stop, you felt a profound sadness. And I guess I wondered, after making this film, were you able to reconcile some of that? No. It would be great if I could. It's funny, I did mention this recently, where when I was in my early 20s, you asked me about what that was like in 1992 or whatever. I was trying to break it down, and I wanted to be rich and famous. I reached my late 20s, I thought, well, my, this rich thing is not really going to work out because the type of pictures I like, they're not the kind of thing that gets you super rich, so forget about that. But that's okay. Just try to become some great director. And then by the mid-30s, my mid-30s, I realized that that was moronic as well because, <laughs> you know, what does that even mean? Uh, it doesn't mean any great director. What does that mean? It's nonsense. Some people like what you do, some people don't, and it doesn't mean anything. And in the end, you hope that you're contributing something and that you move somebody and that he or she or they can contribute to the world in a positive way if they see what you've done and it motivates them. That's the best you got. And that's pretty good. Well, I think it is abundantly obvious by this conversation that um, you have definitely moved me. Well, thank you, Sam. That's so sweet of you to say. That's such a nice thing to say. You make me want to cry. I get what you see. This is what happens also when you get older. You'll see this, Sam. You'll see. When you get older, you start to cry much more. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes it's great. And sometimes you're crying because you're moved and really happy. I don't know if it's, it's not wisdom. It's the freedom to realize that that ephemerality is both negative but also positive. It has its beauty. I sound like I'm Dr. Oz or something. <laughs> you ask me these questions and I can't give glib answers to them. Or if I did, I would be an asshole. It's like, how can you answer the questions that you've given to me? Like, look, that's all good, whatever. Or like being witty. Try to be funny. Your listeners are like, oh my God, he's a miserable guy. I'm not. I have uh, in my telephone a gazillion pictures of praying mantises, which my son has taken with my phone. Because my son, at age 11, figured it all out. He sat there and he would study the praying mantis and he would say, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a thing of magnificence? And he was right. And that's the thing you focus on. And that's enough. And that's enough. Why do you need more than that? I think me searching for the Heinz ketchup was probably a more pure expression <laughs> of the human spirit than it was to lard it up with Susan Sontag. Well, I thank you for the Heinz ketchup. There you go. Sontag references, the eight films, and everything in between. Thanks, Sam. James Gray, appreciate you. Thank you. And that's our show. Special thanks to Jonathan Epstein, Focus Features, and of course, James Gray. His new film, Armageddon Time, is now playing in theaters across the country. To learn more about James and his work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. 
If you enjoyed today's conversation, I imagine you would enjoy our talks with other filmmakers like Steven Soderbergh, Ethan Hawke, Kenneth Branagh, Janixa Bravo, Brian De Palma, and Werner Herzog. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support our show by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. If you want to support us in other ways, the best thing you can do is share the program with a friend. The second best thing you can do is give us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen. Somehow, even in 2022, this is still the best way for new listeners to find the show. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. It was engineered by Clay Hillenberg at iHeart in Los Angeles, California. Our assistant editor is Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Photographs are by Maria Alvarez. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with the one and only George Saunders. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.